At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Where have you placed your hope? You know, when the teaching team put together this study of 1 Peter, it was about a year ago. And we were kind of anticipating what this season would be like as we got a chance to teach it. Now, a couple of things we anticipated. The first thing we anticipated is that we would be on the eve of another presidential election. We kind of knew that that was coming. And as I stand here today, we are 37 days away from another election. And then we also anticipated, and this was kind of disrupted a little bit, that this would also be in the middle of college football season. And uh, if we had the normal schedule, we'd be about a week or two away from the big MSU-U of M game. Now, why is that important? It's important because it's a reminder of two places where we typically put our hope. Now, some of us who are sports fans have this strange affliction where we put too much of our hope in our team's outcomes. How many struggle with that just like me? I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into the life of Chris Brooks. I seriously struggled during college football season. As a matter of fact, I have to uh, sometimes abstain from watching the game so I won't be emotionally distracted on Sunday morning. Now, what I typically will do is call my dad to get the outcome of the score, and that will tell me if I need to make a next call, which is to my therapist. And uh, sometimes I have to make both, right? Uh, but a lot of us who are sports fans, we put our hope in these teams and their outcomes, and we don't know whether or not they're going to win or lose. So how many can agree with me that's a bad place to put your hope? Now, your hope really determines your joy level. It really determines also your behavior, how you live in the world. So what are some other places we put our hope? Well, I mentioned the election. A lot of us have our hopes wrapped up in the outcomes of November 3rd. Let me give you a newsflash. The newsflash is this. You don't know and I don't know what the outcome of November 3rd is. What this year has taught us, what this life has taught us is that this world is highly unpredictable. So don't try to be a prognosticator. But there's another newsflash, and that is in some ways it matters not what the outcome is. If you're not careful what this world will make you think is that the, the, the uh, election results will determine whether or not God's plan is going to be alive and well for our country. But let me just let you know that God's plan is not that fragile. God's plan does not hinge on who's elected into office. How many know that on November 4th, the day after the election, he will still be king of kings. He will still be lord of lords, that he is unelectable, he is unimpeachable, that he reigns forever and ever. His redemptive plan has been in effect. Satan couldn't stop it. Demons couldn't stop it. Principalities can't stop it. Governors can't stop it. Senators can't stop it. Presidents can't stop it. He will accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven and let God's people say amen and amen to that truth. I hope that your uh, ultimate hope is not wrapped up in the economy, which if you charted it over the last 30 years or so, it would look more like a roller coaster than a mountain climb. 
I hope it's not wrapped up in the current level of happiness in your marriage, which ebbs and flows, or the uh, behavior of your children, which you can't control, or the trajectory of your career, which may not be going the way you want it to go. I bring all these things up because these are typical places where you and I have our hope residing in. How do you know where your hope really is beyond cliche, beyond just intellectual affirmations? You know because that's where your joy is. But Peter offers us a better way. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. Now, now it's interesting as we went into 1 Peter, maybe Peter is turning out to be a different type of book study than what you thought it was going to be. See, Peter's book, his writings are not so much a theological treatise or essay like Paul's letter to the Romans is, where Paul does such a beautiful job giving an exposition of what the gospel is and is not. No, Peter's book is more about Christian living. What Peter is concerned about, if the gospel is real, how now shall you and I live? Or put a different way, what should look different about us if Christ is King and Lord and he has come into our hearts? What should look different about us now than before we met him? Or what should look different about us than those who don't know Jesus? Well, the answer is found in verse number three of this chapter. We learned it last week that we've been born again to a living hope. Paul puts it this way, we don't even mourn like those who have no hope. Paul and Peter are in agreement that the distinguishing mark of a Christian in part should be our hope, that we should have this unshakable hope, this increasing hope, this hope that is not fragile, this hope that does not ebb and flow with the world. We should have a hope that arises as this glorious light when things are at their darkest. What that means is that this year has presented us with some phenomenal opportunities for us to demonstrate that hope because the days have been dark. And our hope should be such a light that it not only points people to Christ, but it causes us to rejoice as well as we are reminded of the fact that our king is at work, Aslam is on the move, that Jesus is reigning forever and ever, and he is transforming hearts and lives. That's the type of hope, my friends, that we're supposed to have. And that hope, that promise of future grace transforms our conduct today. You know, hope changes the way we live today. And we're going to talk about that. Let's look at verse number 13. Here's what Peter says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter just did. He says, if you want to have a present-day hope, don't look at the present day. But look ahead at the return of Jesus Christ, because when he shows up, he's going to show up with a, a grace that is, as he said earlier, inexpressible. An inexpressible grace when he shows up. Now, now two things come out of that one little analogy, that word picture that Peter gives us. The first is that we should have an expectation of when our Father sends back the Son. We should have an expectation of when our Savior returns that He's showing up with gifts. 
Now, I haven't traveled that much this year, but uh, historically I travel a lot. And part of what my kids know is that if I go away on a trip and I get a good report from mom that they've been behaving well, then I want to bring them back some pretty cool stuff. As a matter of fact, they've been so conditioned to this that sometimes when I go away and get to my destination and open up my luggage, I will find some lists and suggestions in there lest daddy forgets his end of the bargain. But their end of the bargain is conduct. They got to conduct themselves in a way that is pleasing. And if they conduct themselves in a way that is pleasing, they know when I come walking through that door that they, they should have some, some great expectation. As a matter of fact, typically when I come through the door, the best part of the trip is coming back home. At this stage, my kids still run to me, daddy, 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 fighting to get the first hug in, but also ready for their reward. Jesus is coming back, my friends. He is coming back. He has promised us that he is coming back. He has told us, don't treat this world like your home because it is not. I have a home that I prepare for you. And when I come back, I'm going to give you a joy inexpressible, greater than what you've ever experienced before. This grace and you place your hope in the full revelation, the full expectation of your salvation being fully actualized at the return of your salvation. Savior, Jesus Christ. How many are looking forward to that day? How many believe in that day? How many know he is coming back again? Now, if you know he is coming back again, why then would we ever treat this world like our home? That's what we do. We wrap ourselves so much up in this world's affairs as if the outcomes of this world's events are going to determine our ultimate outcome. Have you bought into that lie? Have you believed the marketeers? Have they tricked you and fooled you? This world is not our home. Let me just tell you what this world is. This world is really more like a hotel. Now, now how do you act differently or treat a hotel differently than you do your home? Let's just use an analogy for just a moment. If you walked into a hotel and you didn't like the decor, what would you do? If you didn't like the painting that was on the wall or the design of the carpet or the layout of the bathroom, what would you do? Would you go on Amazon and begin to look for a new carpet? Would you go to the nearest art gallery and get new paintings? Would you call up a construction company and say, I need my room redesigned? How many say, not if you're saying you don't? How many many agree with that, right? Now, Now, why would you not redecorate your hotel room? Because you know your stay there is what? Temporary. It's only for a moment. And that's different than your home. If you walk in and your home is not what you want it to be, you invest all of your effort and all of your energy into your home because that is permanent. This world is temporary. This world's governments, this world's affairs, this world's economy, this world's relationships, these are temporary. Not unimportant, but just not ultimately important. Not bad. They're good, but just not God. 
And when we elevate what is good to the status of God, we are taking a hotel room and treating it like it's, it's, uh, like it's our home. My friends, the world we live in is temporary, treated as such, and don't place your ultimate hopes in something that is so changing, so fragile. Put your hope in something that is bedrock, unchanging, always reliable, and there's only one who carries with him that type of confidence, and his name is Jesus. Well, I need to say that again because this part of the room responded, you guys didn't. His name is Jesus. Every morning when you wake up and cut on the news, you point back at the newscaster and say, I'm sorry, my hope is not in you. When you check out the stock market, remind yourself, my hope doesn't lie there. I know it's not easy. In particular, when you're nearing retirement or have expectations, but you better have your hope in something that is not fleeting. And for Peter, his recommendation is put your hope fully, notice the word fully, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to make this point, that if God is your father, be holy. If God is your father, be holy. Look at what he says, verse number 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion, passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Again, you're exiles here. You're only passing through. You are sojourners. But your hope determines your conduct. And if your hope is in him, conduct yourself like him. Ladies, let me give you a secret. One of the things that every papa, every dad wants to hear is that your children look just like you. Now, my prayer is that my boys will look like me. Uh, I want my girls to look like their mama. She's much prettier than I am. But the fact of the matter is, is that fathers want their kids to reflect them, to look like them. Well, in large part, so does our Heavenly Father. He wants us to look like Him. And how do you look like Him? It is in your conduct. It is in your holiness. Now, this is a word that we have misunderstood. Last week, we studied a word that was in verse number one, which is consecrate. Consecration and holiness kind of speak to the same thing. And it really speaks to the fact that we have been set apart. To be consecrated means to be set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for particular conduct and service to God. And in this case, it is set apart for holiness. What does holiness look like? Holiness is not so much in the externals. I grew up in the church tradition that thought that, that taught holiness was the length of your skirt, not wearing makeup, keeping your hair in a bonnet. Maybe you heard a little bit about that. But holiness is far more than that. Really, holiness is wrapped up in another word, and it is love. The holiness of God is wrapped up in the love of God, how he loves. And the way that we love him and others really reveal our level of holiness. And what he wants is for us to imitate 
or pattern our conduct after that of our Savior. Now, this tells me that our conduct matters to God. Peter keeps coming back to this thought. So don't ever fall into the trap of, well, Jesus doesn't really care how you conduct yourself or how you behave. He just loves you anyway. Well, he does care how you conduct yourself. His love, yes, is unbreakable, but he does care how we conduct ourselves. And what the Father wants is for us to pattern ourselves after the behavior of the Son. You see, Jesus is, yes, our Savior, yes, our Lord, yes, he is our sovereign, but he is also our example. He's our model. So the more we study the gospel, the more we should begin to pattern our lives after him in particular in the way that he loved. Now, how did Jesus love? So much different than the world. How did he love? Well, here's how he loved. When he was on the cross, after being beaten and bruised, mocked and ridiculed, what was his prayer? What was his prayer for his enemies? His prayer for his enemies was simply this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, can you imagine being there in a moment? What would we have done? Well, we surely wouldn't have prayed that prayer. And if we were at the foot of the cross, we would have tried to correct Jesus. Wait a minute, Jesus. No, you got it wrong. They know exactly what they're doing. No, their hearts are evil. They have a plot and a plan. And if their plot and plan works, they're going to corrupt and destroy everything. That's what we would have said. How do we know that? Because that's what we're saying about our enemies in this generation. You see, our enemies is someone to be conquered as opposed to someone to be loved. But what if we were holy? If we were holy, we would conduct ourselves like he conducts himself. So here's my question for us, for me, for you, is how do we respond not to those who agree with us or align with us, but to those who are opposed to us philosophically in their conduct? in their worldview, in their behavior, in their politics and policies. How do we respond? Is it, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Is it loving our enemies like Jesus has loved? Because herein, my friends, lies holiness. Be holy. If he is your Father, be holy even as he is holy. Matthew chapter 5 says around verse 44 and 45 that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Notice he doesn't just send rain to those who have made him Lord, but he is merciful even to those who are not. Because remember, all of these earthly alignments and affiliations are temporal. What ultimately is important is winning someone to Christ. We're not here to be great debaters. We're not here in order to win arguments. We are here to win souls. Can I get a big amen for that? Amen. Notice that he also says that we need to put away the former, uh, the passions of our former ignorance. Verse number 14, the passions of our former ignorance. <laughs> he brings to mind those foolish and ignorant things that you used to think were enjoyable. How many have some photos where you look back on your life and say, I cannot believe I wore that? Anybody have those photos? Anybody have those memories in your mind of, I can't believe I used to think that was fun? 
Uh, you know, my wife and I talk a lot about how there was music we used to listen to and parties we used to go to and things we used to do. And we say, now, I cannot believe that I used to think that that was a party. I can't believe I used to think that was fun. I was so lost and darkened in my thinking. I did those acts out of ignorance. And what he says is, put those things away. Now, how do I do that? Go back to verse number 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. You do it by preparing your mind for action. Peter knows that you're going to have to engage in the mental energy of preparation. And how do you prepare your mind for action? It is acknowledging the fact that every day I'm going to be tempted to give up my hope, to put my hope in earthly or worldly things instead of putting my hope in the eternal Christ. And I need to be prepared for that. You, be, you shouldn't be surprised that Satan's going to do everything he can to get you to switch your hope or forget your hope. You know what road rage is? Road rage is simply a moment where you've forgotten where your hope should lie. Anybody ever experienced that before? Don't raise your hands. The cameras are on. But I think we've all been there before, right? We've temporarily forgot our hope. And what he's saying, Peter is saying is, Make sure you gird up your minds, prepare your minds, because when you walk out the house, Satan is going to send people across your pathway, and you're going to be tempted to give up your hope and forget you're holy and stop loving like Jesus. When you get on the internet, you're going to be tempted to forget your hope, stop loving and living like Jesus. When you scroll through your social media feeds, you're going to be tempted to give up your hope Stop loving like Jesus. Stop being holy like him. So prepare for action. Get ready for war. Gird up your mind. And the way you do that is being anchored in his word. Because how many know that as we are anchored in his word, we will remain rooted in our hope, the eternal hope of a returning Christ. Amen? All right. Then verses uh, 18 through 21 finishes the paragraph. And in those verses, he is uh, challenging us that if Jesus is our Redeemer, we need to remain faithful. Look at verse number 18. Knowing that you, are, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited uh, from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here Peter again reminds us of those deeds we used to do in ignorance. Now he calls them futile. What made them so foolish is the fact that they're so unproductive. They're unfruitful. They don't get us any closer to Christ or his purpose for our lives. It actually, those things pull us away from being fully alive. When are you fully alive? It's when you're doing what you were created to do. When you are living life fully dedicated and on fire for the Lord. You want to put the doldrums away? You want to take a boring life and bring it fully alive again? Throw yourself fully into the will of God for you. Begin to do that which is productive for his redemption redemptive purposes and put away the feudal things that maybe your forefathers used to do. Those things that may have seemed cool to the world but are not profitable. Now you may feel like, man, how do I put that stuff away? It's maybe been second nature to you. Well, he says this, remember in verse number 18, knowing that you were ransomed what does this word ransom mean? This word ransom means liberated. 
you were set free. This is the type of liberation that Israel experienced from Egypt. They were slaves in bondage, but God, by his mighty hand, comes in and he rescues them. He sets them free. He ransoms them, looking forward to Jesus coming. And how does he ransom us? With that blood on the cross. Notice what Peter is not afraid to acknowledge, and that is that the cross is not, is not allegorized. It is not symbolic. It was real. Jesus really did suffer. He really did. Uh, he really was beaten. He really did spill his blood. He really was crucified, and he died for us. And just as the blood on the doorpost of Israel in Egypt called the death angel to, to pass by, so the blood of Jesus marking our lives takes us from death to life. My friends, you're right. You cannot walk away from your old way of life. But Jesus ransoms us, gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and to say yes to God. And if you're looking for that power to walk away from the things you know are destroying you, then look to Jesus. He's the one that can give you the strength to live for God and live a life and that more abundantly. How many praise God for his mercy? This is the life that we all want to live, not a life of regrets, not a life of looking over our shoulder, not a life of hurting ourselves and hurting others. And he says that you've been ransomed so you can. You've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus, not with corruptible things, perishable things, but with the imperishable blood of the Lamb, who without blemish or spot, man, that's such a sweet word picture because what Peter knows is that for his Jewish readers, they would have no doubt thought of the sacrificial system in which they engaged in and they brought to the priests uh, lambs that were as unblemished as they could think of. But if you examine those lambs close enough, you could find a spot, you can find a blemish, but not so with our Jesus. You look at his life, you look at his behavior, you look at his conduct under pressure, under persecution, in the face of the cross, he is without sin. He's a promise keeper. He fulfills every word. He will never leave us or forsake us. And then he says these powerful words in verse number 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, why? For the sake of you. Man, do not skip verse 20. Verse 20 is so critical for you to know how loved you are by God. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is Peter's way of acknowledging the eternality of the Messiah. This is Peter's way of saying that Jesus, unlike you and I, is not a created being. He was not just uh, created in human history. No, he existed. He is the pre-existing one. John says this in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. This was in the beginning. But then in verse number 14, he says this, and he tabernacled among us. This is the second part of verse number 20, that the one who was before the foundations of the world stepped in time, was made manifest in these last times. Why? For the sake of you, for me. He knew we could not liberate ourselves. He knew we could not 
find hope in and of ourselves. He knew we couldn't get to him. This is what separates Christianity from all the other world religions that teach us about how man and their futile efforts can try to get to God. But what difference does it make if you and I are having a contest to try to reach the moon? If I jump 10 feet and you jump 12, we both are infinitely still far away from ever accomplishing the goal. We cannot save ourselves. So Christianity turns the whole deal on its ear. Here's our story. We can't get to God. So God came to us. How many thank God for that? That we couldn't get to him, so Jesus came for us. He has come for us. He has come for us. He has come for you. He has come for me. Now, that affects two different groups of people differently. For the believer, here's the result of that truth. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He bookends the paragraph with hope in God. Hope in God. If you're a believer, your hope is in God, not in your sports team. If you're a believer, your hope is in God, not the economy. If you're a believer, your hope is in God, ultimately, not the behavior of your children. Though you hope they behave well, if you're a believer, your ultimate hope is in God, not the trajectory of your career. If you're a believer, your hope is in God, not the outcome of elections. If you're a believer, your hope is in God, not the current state of happiness in your marriage. Your hope is in Him who is eternal, unshakable, unmovable, always trustworthy. Hope in God. Hope in God. So that you can have a joy like none other. Hope in God. So that you can have a love like Christ. Hope in God. So that when the world is dark, when the uh, roller coaster ride gets a little bit choppy, when you're wondering which way is this going to go, you can still rise and face the day because your hope is in Him. Be faithful to that hope. Don't give that hope away. But if you're not a believer yet, it should cause you to say, I want that. I need that. Maybe you've been disappointed by this world's systems. Maybe this week has just been a painful reminder of the fact that you can't trust this world. Maybe people have disappointed you and structures of this world have disappointed you and tears in your eyes. Even earlier this week, I found myself once again, tears in my eyes, mourning the fact that we live in such a fallen and broken world. And I would have been devastated this week. I would have been totally devastated this week if all of my hope was wrapped up in this world. But you know what took me from tears of sadness to songs of rejoicing? It was the fact that I know, I know, I know that whatever this world can't give me, I got a savior that is coming back. And when he comes back, he will bring a grace that is inexpressible that the world can't rob me of. The fact is, is my hope is in him, so my joy is full. Everybody stand to your feet today all over this church. How many praise God 
for the hope we have in Jesus. No, 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 no. How many praise God for the hope we have in Jesus? How many are grateful for the hope we have in Him? Folks, we're not at a tennis match. You don't have to be quiet in here. We're not at a golf tournament. You can shout hallelujah. You can say thank you, Jesus. You can give him praise for keeping you. Maybe you don't have a job. You can still have hope. Maybe that boyfriend, girlfriend didn't work out. You still have hope. Maybe kids aren't acting the way you want them to. You still have hope. Why? Because he is still on the throne and he will work all things out for his glory and for our good. Our trust in him is not wasted. His promises will not be broken. He is a promise keeper. And maybe you're in here today and you need to give your life to Jesus. Let me give to you the greatest invitation one friend can give to another. After we're done singing, run to the front of this church. There'll be people here to pray with you, wrap their arms around you. And I promise you, he will give you the power to walk away from the foolish things of the past and walk into new life. Let's pray. Father, we look to you for our hope. We trust in you. You are everything. Help us to love like you, to live like you. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Help us to have a hope that is unbroken. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name, we look forward to the future because we know there is so much more that is to come. And because of that, we shout hallelujah, amen, and amen. And all God's people said amen. Come on and give God praise today. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.